We've had a wonderful, we did have a great Easter bash yesterday, and uh, that was, it was tons of fun. Great to celebrate this uh, Easter week called Holy Week. Um, and today is Palm Sunday, even though that's not our text today, um, just the great reminder of, of what it is to gather together um, to celebrate Jesus. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks has been uh, the man and the book, Nehemiah. And we're so grateful that we got to have Stephen Young and, uh, and Wayne Broderick come in, two great friends, godly men, uh, who had great words to teach us. And so knowing that we would want to kind of unpack and discuss what we learned over the last few weeks, I scheduled this for Paul and I, for us to be able to kind of go through this. Our, our natural tendency, as I think Stephen said, I think mm -hmm. it was Stephen who said, is to biblify the, the, the biblical heroes, the, the, the characters in the Bible. We turn them into storybook characters rather than actual real people if we're not careful. And so um, we want to talk a little about this. Who was this Nehemiah person? What do we have to learn from this Nehemiah person? So let me start with Nehemiah 1.11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. This is Nehemiah speaking. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and to give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, now I was cupbearer to the king. Now this man, in that, that the word, that this man, the king, is Artaxerxes I, historical figure who you can study um, and look back on for sure. This is the third son of Xerxes, who even if you're not much of a student of history, you probably have some concept of who Xerxes is. Xerxes is the Persian king who marched a couple of million soldiers halfway across the world to fight the Greeks, and he ran into the Greeks and most famously the Spartans, at a place called Thermopylae. Well, that's, that's, uh, this Artaxerxes is that man's third son. And, and this was a dysfunctional family, this family, uh, the kings of Persia, and, and probably even more dysfunctional than your family is. Um, Artaxerxes becoming king required the murder of several people. So I don't know how dysfunctional your family is. Probably you're doing better than their family. So that's who we're dealing with. This was a, a common issue, but he was a cupbearer you may have some wrong understandings of what a cupbearer is. I know I certainly did because I don't know where, whether I was taught it or I just naturally came up with this on my own. Um, but I always imagined cupbearers as like the lowly slave who's not worth anything and kind of disposable. That it's like before the king eats, let's give it to that poor guy. Uh, and if he eats it and then it's poisoned and then he dies, well, no big deal. He was worthless. Pass him on, get the next slave in. And good news, the king's still on the throne. Um, but that actually couldn't be farther from the truth, at least here at this point in, in history. Um, we actually know uh, quite a lot from the Persians about what they required about cupbearers. First, um, they, they required them uh, to be very, very well cultured. In fact, they were probably trained uh, as lawyers, trained in the law. Um, they were certainly raised up in uh, politics so that they can converse well at the table uh, about politics. Um, we know that there's a lot of requirements that they be respectable. Um, that means both in words and tact, um, but then also actually probably physically. It's probably likely Nehemiah was quite handsome, very good looking. Um, and, and actually, there's even extra biblical uh, references in history uh, to, of this time and to Nehemiah. In fact, Tobit, the apocryphal book, um, also says of Nehemiah that he was uh, the national treasurer and the bearer of the king's signet ring. Um, we also get uh, from a guy named Xenophon, who wrote, writes a history right about this time, um, that, the, that he places the cupbearer higher than the commander-in-chief, really calling him the second-in-command. Uh, and so we find that, that, again, this notion of it being a 
lowly, just dis- dispensable person uh, is completely erroneous. This was a well-trusted, well-trained, in fact, a, a person who's of good integrity that can be trusted with this, because after all, if you came to power by, a bunch of, by murdering a bunch of people, you probably need to have a very good relationship with your cupbearer. Right. And so this is what Nehemiah's role that's coming in. Uh, and it plays a lot into the story, because I, again, I always thought he was leaving this kind of worthless job that he was kind of enslaved under to go and do this other thing. But no, we'll see. It's quite the opposite. He's leaving power, prestige, position, risking a lot in order to follow, follow what God has for him. When you were talking about that, when, when Paul and I talked about that this week, it reminded me of uh, an account I had read that um, under George W. Bush, Condoleezza Rice, everyone was really jealous and frustrated with her because she was getting time with George, with the president, every day that no one else was getting. And they were complaining about it. Well, the reason was because uh, George W. was famous, at least for his first four years in office, that he ran every single day three miles. He ran three seven-minute miles every day for the first uh, four years of his presidency. Well, think back on George W. Bush's cabinet, Rumsfeld, Cheney. None of them were going to be running three seven-minute miles with him. And the only person on his staff who could keep up with him was Condoleezza Rice. And so she was getting 21 minutes every day with the most powerful man in the world that no one else was getting. And allegedly, when people complained, George would just say, I mean, keep up, right? So that was the, well, that's the cupbearer. They get more time with the most powerful man in existence than anyone else in the kingdom. It's an incredibly powerful position. Nehemiah, though, what's wild when we look at it is that he he did not seem to have any vision for Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. for rebuilding the wall. In fact, as we looked at it, we didn't find any evidence that he had ever been to Jerusalem, um, that he had been involved with that. But somehow he caught God's vision here. And this is one of the things we talk about in leadership here all the time. We don't want our vision. We don't want my vision. We don't want my wisdom or leadership. We don't want what we want is God's. He's got plenty to go around and we need to figure out how to catch on to his picture and his vision which is why we spend so much time in his word. Mm-hmm. So Nehemiah 2.12, for example, you get Nehemiah insight to Nehemiah. Then I rose in the night, <coughs> I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Notice where he places that. God put this into his heart. When his brother came and told him about the conditions of Jerusalem, God had a vision that was beyond Nehemiah. What struck us as we were studying Nehemiah, and I don't know about you, but as I was listening to Stephen and Wayne teach in the last couple of weeks on Nehemiah, were the similarities once again to our situation, Mm -hmm. to our situation as the church, to our situation in America, as Christians in America, and to Daniel, Um, Daniel, who we've been studying. the, The similarities were crazy. Real quickly, a few of them. One, an indifferent multitude. Um, surrounded by people who aren't acting, who aren't doing anything, complaining a lot, protesting a lot, whatever a lot, but not doing anything in order to actually change stuff. This indifferent multitude struck me as that that was one. And this indifferent multitude, though indifferent, they don't want the status quo pushed. They don't want something changed either. This is what they, they, they've got the changes, unless it's a change that, that makes them happy, um, they don't want their status quo questioned. They don't want their perspective or position questioned. Um, we see Nehemiah and his followers jeered at, hated, threatened, persecuted, slandered mm-hmm. by this otherwise indifferent multitude. And it seems, third, that there's only a few people willing to step up against the pressure of this crowd, against the pressure of this multitude. In fact, it seems like a lot of people, even the Jews at the time, What they were doing was using this pressure from the multitude as an excuse to compromise. Mm -hmm. 
that they were, well, you know what, we can't push back against this. It's just too big. It's just too powerful. We don't have any walls. We don't. I, I love when Stephen said, even though it's kind of a, a, he threw it as a funny line, hey, leaders are called leaders because they lead. Yes. Well, he, but then he points out, it's not like everybody else didn't know the wall had a problem. I mean, there were people living in Jerusalem, thousands of them. They knew the wall had a problem, but, but they weren't doing anything about it. People even came all the way to him and complained about it. And Nehemiah from God's vision is the one who catches it. And maybe most, not maybe, and most significantly, they catch on that God is their protagonist. That's right. This, is, this, is a key, this has been my, my, the coolest thing in Daniel to me as we've studied through Daniel, is the, rec, is the recognition and the reminder that I'm not the protagonist of my story. That, that, that South Spring is not the protagonist of South Spring's story. That we aren't. God is the protagonist in the epic story that's being told in my life and hopefully in your life and in the church's life and all of it. That, that he is the protagonist. Human effort is there, mm-hmm. but it's always God by both of these men who gets credit for getting stuff done. We'll come back to that. Go ahead. Yeah, and similarly, even in Daniel's story where his name in the book had meaning, just like a lot of times in the Old Testament, uh, Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's name also carries with it specific meaning that actually ties in, as one author put, very, very beautifully with even his response to the call. Because actually, we say Nehemiah, but if we were reading the Jewish transliteration of it, we would say Nehemiah, and so we'd Nehemiah, and so we'd focus in on the Yah part at the end, which is the shortened version of Yahweh, uh, which would be God. God the Lord, and Nechem, which is a word that comes off of uh, the meaning of for comfort. And so essentially, uh, Nehemiah, his name means God comforts, or the God that comforts, or God will comfort. And this is a bearing truth that he represents by his person and in his name. And I love the way that it was so similar to Daniel, because what, what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel seeks to be a part of God's work. And so then he goes to God and works after that. And Nehemiah seems to be the same. He bears this trait, this truth about God, and then he goes about that work. Because look back in, in Nehemiah 1.3, um, where we actually find the reason for why he's responding to, um, uh, to what the situation is. He's talking to his brother. His brothers come back um, from Judah, and he's asked his brother uh, how, the, how things are going there. And his brother says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame great trouble and shame. This could be actually translated distress and reproach. And essentially, if there's any setting here that then would then be asking for a comfort from God, this is it. And it's one author, again, who said that it was these words when Nehemiah realized he could be the comforter, a part of God's work, because he knows God is a comforter, and this is why he then would move over and step into this role. He actually went so far and said, this is just what Nehemiah does all the time. In the cupbearer role, he's a comforter to the king, and then now he is going to go build these walls to provide comfort for the people. And I love that this is back, uh, remnant of Daniel. God is at work. God is a comforter. So Nehemiah wants to be part of that work. You want to do the Warren Wiersbe or you want me to jump? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. So we're, we're jumping into this. Uh, uh, the, the, there's a quote that, I've, that when I was studying um, Faith in Exile by Larry Osborne um, is the phrase, God is in control of who is in control. Mm-hmm. He always has been and he always will be. This is a key for us to, to remember that when things seem to be some way spinning out of control, that only seems that way to us because it is spinning out of our control. 
And it's a great comfort to remember, even when you look at conditions like Daniel and Nehemiah and others, that it certainly seemed like things were spinning out of control. And it was spinning out of theirs, but not God's. And this is, again, the role of the protagonist. And, and Nehemiah, like Daniel, and hopefully like us, gets this in a way that is tough for us. Um, there's three different verses that jumped out at me, Nehemiah 4.9, 4.15, and 4.20, that had phrases in it that showed this. 4.9 says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Now notice, there's no contradiction here. There's no competition between we set a guard, but we prayed to God. I mean, our, our trust, we set a guard, but our trust was in God. Or in 4.15, the phrase, when Nehemiah's plan comes together, he, he, here's how he describes that. God frustrated their plans. That when what Nehemiah was doing, he still gives the credit to God. And, God, and Nehemiah's working, mm-hmm. God gets the credit. Our God, or verse 20, our God will fight for us. You show up, you run to the place of the battle, you be armed, and God will fight for us. And so we were struck as we looked at this pattern of Nehemiah's over and over again that what Nehemiah does is he sees a problem, he seeks God, and then he acts. Mm -hmm. That is the pattern. Every time he seeks God without fail, and then he acts. (coughs) So when we talk about this seeking God thing, he hears from his brother, he prays and he fasts. Nehemiah 1.4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying. He was already fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Or or another time, he sees a different need. Nehemiah uh, 2, 16 and 17, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. This is an impossible task. He goes by himself, actually just with a few trusted people. He goes, he examines the situation. It's hopeless. Mm-hmm. It is impossible task. There's no way for this wall to be rebuilt. He is not stymied by that because his job is not to make it happen. His job is to seek God and work, and then God is the one who's going to make that happen. That's, right. That's what he believes. And so why be afraid of an impossible task if, if it's not your task in the end to get accomplished? And so that's his perspective. Even just when he gets asked a question in the middle of a conversation, Nehemiah 2, 4, and 5, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. His instantaneous response is not to answer, but to pray. So I sought God. That's what he does first. And let me just tell you, I'm, I'm going to confess something here. These last couple of years have taught me this um, and really brought this to my attention. It, one of the things that um, I would say annoys me, but even more than that, hurts me, like that, that this is what, what is hardest for me, is when, is when people don't seem to know me. This is a personal thing. People don't seem to know me well enough to involve me. Like, there's a situation that I could help them with. I could come alongside them. That's my passion. I love doing that. And, and they don't know me well enough to ask me to be a part of that. Mm. And let me just tell you, I do that to God day after day after day. Time after time that I forget. I'm like, oh, well, God, I don't, I, I don't know if God will. I don't even know. I'm not thinking at all is the truth of the matter. I just act and I don't seek God first and realizing how if I'm offended by that, how much more offensive that must be 
Um, it's really been convicting to me as we've studied Daniel and looking at Nehemiah, once again, having that thrown against, up in my face, which I need to be reminded of right here. It isn't, uh, it isn't always the same, by the way. The prayers aren't always the same. Sometimes in Nehemiah they celebrate. Sometimes they mourn. Sometimes they confess. But, but what matters is they are aware. The minute he becomes aware, he turns to God in humble confession, asks for God's blessing, and then he gets to work. Mm-hmm. This, this pattern of pray, work, pray, work, pray, work is uh, found all throughout the book. In fact, you get through the narrative sections and you constantly run into prayer. We actually right. find about 12 references to <laughs> prayer. You can see them. They span all the way across all the chapters um, because that's what he's doing. He's telling the story about where his work is leading him. And before he goes into that work, he prays. And then when he goes into the next thing, he prays and then finds work and back and forth and back and forth. And one of the things that Chris just read is one of my favorite prayers that's in here is this like almost spontaneous prayer that mm-hmm. he comes to. Because he read it back in 4 of chapter 2. He said, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to God of heaven, and I said to the king. Now, again, this is broken up by two different verses in our English Bible, but in the original, there are no verse markings, right? And actually, the Hebrew language makes it more clear where it's tying these together in this immediate, almost, again, spontaneous response here uh, that there's not a break. It's not like the king says, what are you requesting of me? And then Nehemiah says, hang on, let me go over to my prayer corner. Let me have a quick devotional, and then I'll get back to you, and I come back, and then I answer. No, this is, this is Nehemiah spontaneously breaking into prayer, and almost as if Nehemiah is talking to the king of the Persians and the king of kings at the same time. Right. He takes prayer, conversation with, the, with his God, Lord and Master, and just melds it into the everydayness of life, yep. that there's no difference to him. And that's why he can be so quick at this. There's no gap between the king's question and Nehemiah's response. And I was particularly struck with that notion again. And one of it uh, is because we have an example here on staff who does this very well, and that is uh, Lance, our executive pastor of engagement. And Lance is one of those that if you can just talk to him in conversations or ask him about um, somebody he's been talking to, he's very quick to say things like, hey, I was hearing this from this person, and while they were sharing this, I was praying this, and then the Lord brought this upon their heart, and the conversation turned. Uh, and, uh, and again, he's just wired that way, and I think does a good job out of discipline. In fact, I remember one of the times that he was saying, uh, I was walking through the woods praying that God would show me which tree I needed to sit down to and have a time alone with him. And I was like, wait, you're, before you're finding a time to pray to God, you're praying to him to find the place to have it with God. I was like, this is, again, it almost didn't make sense, but that's because he had meld those things uh, together so well. And this is what I think Nehemiah does. He, he prays spontaneously, quickly, and really probably best be told why he gets to do this is because he's praying continually. Mm-hmm. Because this is just a habit of his life. Because before this, why, before he gets to respond to the king, he's actually been praying for four months since his deep prayer of chapter one. And he's been praying day and night over this opportunity. Uh, and then when the opportunity arises, he's able to spontaneously walk into it, include God into it because he is constantly praying. This is, gives us hope when Paul, uh, the apostle says in some verses, like in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Or over mm-hmm. in Romans 12, when he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 
Or again in Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. Uh, the reason why Paul is able to present to us this notion of consistency in prayer um, is partly because he knows that this is something God has accomplished through the example of many great saints before, and specifically, this is what we see in Nehemiah. He is constantly uh, going before the Lord in prayer and then quickly responding in action. But to break maybe both of our pattern, let, let's stop and pray as we're going to move into the action section of this, the, pray, the seek God, then take action. I don't want it to be our conviction in any way laid on you. I want it to be or on us. Um, Paul's going to reference in a minute that some of us need a, a, a hug and some of us need a kick in the pants. And I want to make sure that the Spirit knows who is, the Spirit does know who is who, and I, our prayer is that the right people would experience the right thing through this. So Father, we we entrust to you what you've called us to. We entrust to you the power of your word. And we ask that your spirit would be what guides us. That your Holy Spirit is what guides us. Not, not our own burdens that we carry or the burdens of our family or the burdens of the church or the burdens of whatever, but your burdens. And that you're the burdens of your son, the yoke uh, and the burden that he gives us is the one we would take on and that we would carry. That we would act according to you and to your will and to your vision. I pray that for us as a church, and I pray that over every individual who can hear this now or whenever they listen to it. And I pray that your word would speak through the sanctifying power of your spirit and according to your son's perfect name and your uh, perfect knowledge, we ask it. Amen. Amen. So here we have this man who is comfortable, well compensated. He's in a great position, and he risks all of that. In fact, he sacrifices all of that to take an unpopular action in the face of the culture. So let's start by talking about taking action. <laughs> Some of us um, have been caught, I think, complaining about the, the tendency of the younger generation in America right now, whose battle cry seems to be this, someone ought to do something. That, that they, they carry the banners, and they've got the signs, and they've got the cries, and they, we demand this, and when do we want it now? We... we we want this. Someone ought to do something. Now, they're not doing anything. They're just saying someone ought to do something. Now, the problem is, then there's the older generation, who I am more and more often representing, right, <laughs> who is saying, well, what about, you know, these, these kids and their complaints all the time, all they're doing is complaining, and they're not doing anything. But am I doing anything, mm -hmm. or am I just complaining now? And so the question is, how do we step into not just seeking God, once we've sought God, to then act. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the things that the church is meant to offer us is the opportunity to act, to make a difference. If we know there's a problem and just feeling the feels about it, you're not doing anything yet. Um, that nothing is, you're, not, you're not accomplishing anything yet. Just feeling it's not sufficient. I think that's part of what maybe Wayne was talking about with the, the dangers of, of empathy. Empathy alone doesn't solve anything. There needs to be an action, actions that come with it. If you know there's a problem, it's time to engage. Seek God and then engage. And listen, everyone has good excuses. The work is hard. It requires an amount of grieving and, and, and risk and hardship. It's going to require, God forbid, change. Hmm. Change on our parts as individuals. As we're coming back from this year of COVID, as we have what, what Paul, you referenced in the first service, this COVID story, mm -hmm. That, we, that we've each now have and that we all have together, 
when you come back to South Spring and you're back engaged and you're, and you're here and you're serving, it's not going to look the same. It just isn't. There's all kinds of differences. Some will be practical. Some will be programmatic. Some will be the way the chairs are structured. Or some's going to be things like that. And some are going to be the faces. There's going to be different faces here. There's new people who you may not have met yet who have joined during this year. There are people, some of whom are servants and leaders, owners and shepherds, who they've moved on. They have gone to a different church or, or they're involved in a different ministry somewhere. And they're settling back as this whole world is kind of shaken up and is now settling back. Some people are going to be settling in different places. And we can't always know why. As long as it's a good place where people settle, then we can celebrate as the body. Mm-hmm. We can celebrate with them where they've settled. That, that is absolutely the case. And we, here's the thing. We want to be able to celebrate with you where you settle. And so if you're one of those people who's like, oh, I'm here this week, but the last nine weeks I've been visiting this other church. It's a great church. And I really feel at home there, but I need, and I need to... Okay, well, let us celebrate that with you. If, if you're here or, or there, let us celebrate that with you. Now, if the temptation is that you just want to go find a city that already has a wall so that you don't have to build, that's different. If you're saying, listen, it'll be easier to just go find this other place that'll have... It's already got what I need. I don't have to create anything. I don't have to work and serve. I'm not going to celebrate that with you. Um, that's, that's a different issue entirely. And so what is going on? For many of us, it's just bad habits that have developed in the last year. There are probably plenty of people, maybe even people watching online now or during the rest of the week, who your COVID story is totally appropriate that you're still not here for one reason or another. I, that's, not, that's not a judgment call that anyone can make between you and God. However, for some, it's just because we've settled into bad habits. When we had to... When we had to um, Podcast, podcast, Bob Livesay, and, and he started cranking out these, these humorous, I, I threw out one, and then he's like, course, he's been at this a lot longer than I, he starts cranking out these like, when I said like, oh yeah, you know, some of these people, they've been visiting First Mattress for the last year, and uh, that's been where they've been attending is at First Mattress, and, and he starts cranking out these like, yeah, they, they're still having a blanket victory every Sunday, um, they're at Bedside Baptist, um, in the, the, the Inner Spring Baptist Church, or whatever, like, um, I was like, well, you got, we could beat South Box Springs. That's, that's the name of our, the new name of our church. That's, there, there is issue with this. There is an issue here, and we need to, we need to pick up that. Yeah, and, and in that conversation, actually, uh, Dr. Livesay referenced a book, um, Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, uh, and I picked it up and started reading it. And if you're familiar with uh, Chan's preaching uh, and his writings, he does, the chapter one's exactly like any of his messages, where he says, starts off by saying, this is what I hope to do, and then he goes on to do a whole bunch of apologies. And he's like, I'm sorry about this, I'm sorry about this, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> um, but in the book, it struck me because I think it's fascinating, because one of the things he starts apologizing for is because he knows that he is presenting a message that is going out to a bunch of hearers. And this is the concept that he, it was really his words that he said, some of y'all need to be reading this book and need to feel a swift kick in the pants. But then he said, but some of y'all are reading this book and you just need a gentle hug. And the problem is, I don't know. I'm only presenting a message and I don't know which one of those you need to hear. And he said, the most dangerous part is if you need the swift kick in the pants and yet you receive from this a gentle hug. 
<laughs> or if you need that hug and you're beaten and broken down and all you receive is just a swift kick in the pants, right? That's, that's the danger. And I think that also is going to be something that is going to be so important for us. And I hope you all hear, especially if you're listening online, uh, that we're going to start using this language about, again, let's get back to church. Let's get back to engaging. Let's seek the Lord and let's start acting together. And as we, as we say that, again, we know that for everybody, their COVID story is totally different. Some of y'all are watching online knowing that it's still not the right time for your family, your circumstance, whatever's going on, that you would be engaging in this. And if you're there and you need that hug, I hope you don't hear the rebuke and the kick in the pants of just feel bad because we're saying come back to church and you're not doing that. But at the same time, like Chris mentioned, some people are watching and it is this, that they're just comfortable or they just have a bad habit and that they really need not just our, you know, exhortation, but really the Lord's in that, no, I've created you for something more. I've given you a life abundant that calls you out of yourself and calls you into a life of following with me. And that doesn't happen alone. You need to gather together and to do that. And so again, we, we know that there's this wrestling and we hope that we can present this, this challenge with grace, understanding both sides of that coin, and then being desperate on the Holy Spirit to convict you with what you're doing. And if you're looking for somebody to help balance that out and weigh that is of like, should I get engaged? Should I not get engaged? Well, good news again. We have a pastor of engagement. His name's Lance. Reach out to him. He would love to walk you through that story. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, I hope again that it's not our call, but it's really the Holy Spirit's call in your life to really do this because this is what we know it's true. It's what Stephen read a couple of weeks ago, Hebrews 10, 24, call for all of us and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Stephen divided this, showed us these steps, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because you can go back and listen to him do it. Stirring up, provoking, stimulating, like a, a, like a, a sharp thing prodding you, like maybe a cattle prod. It's time to make a decision. It's time to act. To what? to love and good works. Are we doing that with one another? How are you going to have be, be stirred up into love and good works if you're not around the people who are likely to stir you up into love and good works? We need that. Um, and not neglecting to meet together, therefore. So we need to be meeting together in, in the fellowship so that we can be stirred up. And you don't want it to become a habit of neglect. The neglectful habit of just, it just gets easier not to. It just becomes, and, and one of the things that we've got to be doing, we'll talk about this more in just a second, is inviting one another, is encouraging one another, is doing this. As we looked at this, this provoking and encouraging, one of the things that Paul noted in something that we were reading mm-hmm. was that more than half of the book of Nehemiah is lists. It's lists of people and what they're doing and how they're serving and how they're working. It's some of my favorite stuff. It's there in Nehemiah 3 in, in, in some really cool ways, especially. I just got louder. That was, that was really awesome. Um, okay, so uh, some of you, you, some of us, we know better, we're stuck, and we need to get out of that. So let me encourage you, when, we're, when we are working in this world as the church, we pray together, we baptize together, we commune mm-hmm. together, we eat together, we greet together, we give mm-hmm. together, we praise together, we learn together, we give thanks together, we talk about God together, and that's really hard to do when we're not together. And so we, we need that togetherness to, to be connected in a, this community. How am I supposed to learn what God has for you to teach me if you're not here? 
How am I supposed to experience this with you when you're not here? How are you supposed to experience it when I'm not here? And I don't mean Sunday by Sunday. Of course, there are reasons why we're not here. But in a general sense, we need one another to be able to do this. It's not the same. You're invited back. If you've not been coming and there's any question as to whether you're welcome, you're welcome. We want you here. We want to experience this. It's not the same without you. And everyone's new now again. I don't know about you, but I look out and I see a bunch of people I don't recognize. But you may have been here a year ago and my brain just does that. But it, it may be, we're going to have to be really curious, really graceful with each other. Right. You're going to be greeting people and going, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm good to meet you. I'm glad you're here. If you've been here before? And they're going to be like, yeah, I was one of the founders of the church. Like that's, that's going to, it already happened before. It's really going to happen now, especially if you get on the other side of the room. I mean, they're total strangers <laughs> over there. Like you've never, ever seen those people. When we, as we start greeting each other and, and doing these things together, you're going to see that. We're going to face the awkwardness together. We've had a tough year, it's been a, but, but many of us didn't use it as an opportunity to take a break, which is sad. Is that if we had said a year ago, hey, we're going to take a month and, and we're not going to have children's ministry, we're not going to have student ministry, we're not going to have adult ministry, just take a break, have a breather for a month, we're all going to take a vacation. Everyone would have been really celebrating, like, wow, what a, what a crazy idea to get a... Okay, you've had a year. <laughs> a year off. It's time to get back to work. Right. No, when do you get a year-long vacation? Now, I know many of us didn't use it for that, sadly. But I want to jump in because I don't want to run out of time for this little section right here uh, for today. One of those lists is in Nehemiah 3. And this is the list of different people and what they took on and built in regards to the wall. Nehemiah 3, 2, for example, says, Next to him the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zechur the son of Imri built. What's the point? 28 times in this section, 21 out of 22 verses in this section of Nehemiah have the phrase, next to them. This is, this is the picture of Nehemiah that I find so compelling, is that it's this people next to these people, next to the, each doing what God has called them to do. We created a visual with this. Now, we have lots of different ministries in the church, a lot of different things that we're doing, but our ministry to minors is one of the things I wanted to focus on. And so Colson this week cranked out these, these great slides to show us this, this is what our church is, is largely about. It is the opportunity to raise up a new generation of Christians prepared to face the pressures. They have the relationships, they have the training, they have the equipping, they have the scripture in order to be able to face the pressures that we're going to be facing, that they're likely to be facing. And as you can see, we have a lot of people who have stepped up and are serving. And there are gaps in the wall. There are places almost every age there are opportunities to serve. Not quite every age, but almost every age where there's opportunities to serve. <coughs> this is this is our kind of our Nehemiah 3 as it stands right now. And so how are people going to be doing this? Can, what, the question should be, what can my role be? Where can I step in? I seek God and then I act. How do you get involved and get involved with what's going on in each of these things? Again, there's so many more, there's so many more opportunities to serve than just this. But I really feel like we're getting to the place. You know how people will say, like, if you, if you, if you don't vote, you're not allowed to complain. I, I, I always appreciate that. I feel like we're getting to a place in the church where if you're not investing in the next generation of Christians, you probably shouldn't be complaining about where our country is going. If you're not investing in your children, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews, if you're not investing in the next generation of Christians, then that's part of the problem about where our nation may be going, or and worse, where our churches may be going. So it's time for us, I think, to step up and be step into our wherever our part in the wall is it's not the same for everybody, 
And we're listening to the Holy Spirit in this, not just us. We grieve at this. Most of us, in fact, all of you are 10 years older than when I came to this church. <laughs> Pretty sure. What is our window? How much time do we have left? How long before we're not going to be free to do some of these things? We better act while we can. And I realized, by the way, some of you, many of you are, are now listening to two teachers who are younger and less experienced than you, in some cases, even in the pastorate. And realizing I better be working diligently to train up pastors who I want to learn from. I better be diligently training up teachers that I want teaching my grandchildren. I better be training up politicians I want to vote for. That's the kind of thing that we as the church have the power to do. And here's the cool thing. We offer that to you free of charge. We even pay you donuts. That's right. You get all the donuts and coffee you can possibly eat and drink. And, and what we're giving is the opportunity to invest in and make a difference in the church and in our nation. So if you're already serving and working, I'm going to wrap up with this. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for working with my children and, and Paul's kids and, and all of ours and, and the young people and serving one another in adult ministry and all the different discipleship. All these things are key. Um, but there's still a job for even those of us who are already serving to do. One, um, we need to be steadfastly relying on God. It still took 52 days, even with all these people, to build this wall under lots of pressure, which is a miracle, but it wasn't easy. Second, we need to be encouraging each other, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. We've got to be pouring into it, encouraging and inviting. If this body will relearn the skill of the invitation, it's amazing how you run into somebody who's not been involved and you go, hey, you need to get back there. We want you back here. And lo and behold, they're back. Because they need to, we need an invitation. It's important to us. And, and, and again, back all the way back to the beginning, mm -hmm. we need to be praying for fellow harvesters. That's right. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, Jesus says this. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Not lots changed in 2,000 years. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think for years I didn't like this passage because I saw this as pitting two things against each other. Well, well, I don't need to be praying. I need to be harvesting. And I think that's because I misunderstood that Jesus is talking to a whole room full of harvesters here saying, while you're harvesting, pray for right. more harvesters. Those of us who are working, pray for more workers. I don't just mean in this church, although that would be great to fill in the gaps, stand in the gaps, but also out and beyond and into the, our nation and into the church in this kingdom. So now at this time, um, why don't you all stand with me <clears throat> and let's be thinking about what is the Spirit speaking to us in our schools, in our families, in our, here at this church or at another church, in another ministry. What is God doing in us? What is the Spirit saying? Is that His boot you feel back there? Is that His arms you feel wrapping around you? Whatever it is that the Spirit is leading you in, know seeking Him and doing His work is something we're all called to. And so whatever that is, I, I pray that you'll be listening to the power of the Spirit in your life right now. Um, Paul's going to lead us in a prayer of confession, and that as we're in this prayer of confession, that you will be also confessing and listening. Paul? Have mercy on us, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions, and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Hide your face from our sins. Blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore us to the joy of your salvation and upholding us with a willing spirit. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or we would give it. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Our sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Amen. So you can come as we sing. You can come and pray. You can pray where you are. You can go find someone in the room if you need to talk to somebody. Or you can, if you've gone through the right process and you're ready to come join this dysfunctional family, we'd love to have you. Um, Just listen to the Spirit and respond as the Spirit leads. Guys.